Welcome to Ghosts Were People Too. This is Annabelle here, introducing a part two of our two-part episode on spiritualism. We will also be joined by Quest in a moment, and we are going to talk about spirit photography. If you want to know a little bit more about spiritualism, what it is, where it came from, and some of the performance aspects of a seance, then go over to part one. It's pretty nice. Um, And if you've already heard it, or if you just want to know about spirit photography, then go ahead and join us. Here comes part two. Boo. All right, we are back to talk about spirit photography. So what is spirit photography? Spirit photography is kind of what it sounds like. It is an attempt to photograph a spirit. And what these photos would have looked like is usually a live human sitting for a photograph, and then somewhere around them, sometimes in the background, sometimes uh, draped over the shoulders of the uh, person in the photograph, would be a human ghost. It'd be like a gauzy-looking, wispy, white um, apparition of a person. And usually their face was pretty blurred, um... Sometimes they would be wearing diaphanous clothing to uh, accentuate the ghostliness. Now, I'm describing this uh, sort of with the assumption that it was a posed photo, right? But a believer would have seen this as the actual image of a uh, spirit, Um, the, you know, that the, the dead were with them in that photo, but the technology of the photograph made it possible for the dead to be seen in a way that they couldn't be seen in the studio. And like we were talking about with spiritualism and how some mediums claimed to be summoning the spirits of famous dead, there were also a lot of spirit photographs that showed famous like photographs of notable people superimposed on the the living sitter. Yes, and Mary Todd Lincoln um, is maybe one of the most famous examples. Um, and interestingly enough, the photo that was taken of Mary Todd Lincoln um, was by a man named William Mumler, who we're going to talk about momentarily. Um, And that photo was taken after he was very publicly put on trial for fraud. Um, But she still went to him to have this photo taken. If you are listening to this podcast and you have not seen any examples of spirit photography, pull up a tab on Google or whatever Um, Search engine of your choice. Exactly. Um, And just type in spirit photography and look at some of the examples because they really are a joy to behold, whatever you believe about them. 
Um, and so without further ado, let's talk a little bit more about the history of photography and how we got to this point, because it seems a little bit mad that uh, spirit photography was such a huge feature of early photographic uh, studios. And so I just wanted to start off by talking about a very brief history of photography because um, there are just so many innovations in such a short period of time when it comes to photography. And these innovations are deeply intertwined with spirit photography and why it uh, really took off at the time that it did. Um, Sort of like we were saying when we were talking about spiritualism, spirit photography or photography in general came to exist at a time where people were really ready to believe new things. They were ready to learn about science and technology, um, but they were also kind of caught in the whirlwind. So in 1839, two processes for permanently fixing images reflected into the camera obscura were announced. And this was really huge because up until this point, um, if you were playing around with a camera obscura, you would be able to kind of capture an image, you'd be able to see it, but there really was no good way to keep whatever image you saw. And so all kinds of amazing nerds were trying to um, find ways to keep the images permanently affixed to some sort of medium. So in 1839, in Paris, Louis-Jacques de Daguerre and company, probably there are some other dudes involved as well, uh, invented a method of fixing a laterally reversed monochrome picture onto a metal plate. And then in London, William Henry Fox Talbot announced a method by which a negative, which is, you know, what we have as a model for photography today, you take a picture, it creates a negative, and then you transfer that um, onto a print. So he announced this method by which a negative, both tonally and laterally reversed, um, is transferred onto a chemically treated surface and exposed to sunlight to be transferred in reverse, resulting in an image with normal spatial and tonal values. Um, and this was called a calotype or a Talbot type. Um, so like I said, the Talbot type was the model that later became um, the, the system upon which modern photography is based. But that was not the, the chosen model in the early days of photography. The daguerreotype made a lot more of a splash um, and was adopted a lot more readily. Um, and this is partially because the way that it was presented seemed a lot less abstract. So um, Daguerre had this fairly simple relative to, you know, like we would not think of it as simple today, but it was a relatively simple method, at least compared to Talbot's method. Um, also, daguerreotypes were a lot more detailed in their early days. 
um, a lot of the Talbot types came out sort of blurred and soft, uh, which was not as enticing because people were excited about this idea of capturing a real-to-life image, which was something that was not possible before. Right. So they wanted it as sharp as possible. Right. They want as much detail as they can get. Right. Um, the daguerreotype takes off. Vive la France. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and um, there's just one problem. Just one? There's a major problem. Okay. The, uh, the major <laughs> – there are a lot of problems. But the major problem is that – the daguerreotype requires about 20 minutes, sometimes a little more, of exposure to get the photo. Okay. That's a lot. So you would basically have to um, have whatever it was in your picture completely still for it to even show up for 20 minutes. And... It needed to be in full sunlight. Um, so as you can imagine, a lot of the earliest photographs are of landscapes, of cityscapes, um, because people were just not capable of sitting still for that long. When it got a little better, you see pictures of people whose eyes look like they are watering or a lot of the time they would take pictures of um, people with their eyes closed. In candid settings, objects in motion would actually disappear. So um, we already have a little bit of a ghostly quality right, to photographs course. here. Um, one really famous example is Daguerre's Boulevard du Temple. <laughs> which, Boulevard du Temple. Oh, thank you. Which is an 1838 photograph that appears to show an empty street. But in reality, this was a very busy midday scene there are people um quest is looking at this picture right now going it looks what? like a ghost town it yeah. looks like it has been abandoned that you've cleared the street for filming if you look really closely there are two visible people and it's someone who is shining a gentleman's shoes because they were still enough for it to capture them. Oh, um, my God. But, yeah, it looks like there's no one on the street when in reality there were many people. It's just that the exposure was so long that they were rendered invisible by motion. Photography was a really popular burgeoning medium, and therefore lots and lots of people were trying to advance the technology. And so they were able to change the chemical processes. They were able to reduce the size of the plate that the photo was taken on. They improved lenses and also new designs for studios that let in more light. So all of these things together made it possible finally to take portraits. Am I accurate in picturing the camera that looks almost like an accordion and it has the curtain and you poke your head under it and there's the thing on the side. You know what I'm talking about? Like yes, they have in cartoons. Exactly. Okay. And I'm not going to pretend to be able to tell you what all those parts are. But if you're interested, <laughs> there are a lot of resources for this. And actually, a lot of people who are still working with these types of historic cameras um, that you can check out. Um, yeah. 
you're totally right. That's exactly what it looks okay. like. See, it's really funny because I am the one with the art history degree here and I do not know most of this. So this is fun. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a pretty niche uh, right. thing. I mean, I, I think even, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, photographers, but I think even uh, contemporary photographers don't necessarily have a lot of experience with these early cameras. Yeah, I mean, you don't find contemporary daguerreotypes. Well, actually, you do. I mean, maybe we will be able to link this in the show notes, but there are some photographers um, who are sharing their work online um, who are doing this now as uh, for hire, basically, as wedding photographers, but also as artists. um, And there has been a resurgence of... Take it back. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, l- let's take a little unexpected detour to a man whose name you might recognize. Maybe not his first name, but certainly his last name. Samuel Morse. Yes? Yes. 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 <laughs> this is the guy who invented Morse code, which for the longest time as a child, I thought was Morris code. Um, <laughs> Rest in peace, Samuel Morse. I know your name now. I'm so sorry. Um, Samuel Morse comes into play because he created one of the first photography studios in Boston with enough light and fast enough photo processing to capture images of people. And he had this wild and tragic life where he was a, a painter And um, he was beginning to get recognized for his paintings. And while he was away doing a really important commission, his wife unexpectedly died. Oh, no. And he had written her a letter, assuming that she was alive. But it took two days for him to receive the letter saying that she had died. So basically, it turned his entire life upside down when he realized that he could be thinking about this person as if they were still alive when in reality it was just that the communication had not gone through yet that they were dead that's Um, so interesting yeah so this had a lot to do with his obsession with the telegraph and creating that technology um but i think it also had a lot to do with his interest in photography which brought this ability to fix a person's image in time. Right. I should also mention, because I came across this and I can't withhold this information, that he has another kind of dark past, another kind of like horrible history, Um, not just personal tragedy, although I would call this a personal tragedy, (laughs) Um, but later in his life after, you know, helping propel all of these really essential technologies forward, Uh, He attempted to run for mayor on an anti-Catholic platform. So he was a huge hater of Catholic. (laughs) Whoa. Who's Catherine? (laughs) So he he was a huge hater of Catholics. And he was also really vocally pro-slavery. And he was quoted saying that it was sanctioned by God that slavery should exist. Um, So... You hate to see it. Yeah, he's problematic. But also... It is the 1800s. Most people are by uh, our standards. Right. 
I mean, that doesn't make any of this better. Most people did not run for mayor saying that they were going to eradicate all Catholics in Boston. (laughs) So like 1600s England. Yeah. Um, Well, I'd like just to say I. Wow. (laughs) Well, I'd just like to say that Morse actually did come up just a tiny bit in my research, namely that. Uh, there was the comparison between using knocking as a form of communication with spirits and the one for yes, two for no, or vice versa, I can't recall, and how that was just kind of technologically similar to, or conceptually similar to... uh, The telegraph. Yeah. Yeah, Samuel Morse is a person with a story that is really at the center of a lot of the happenings of this time. In American history. Um, and so I thought we had to take a little detour and, and wave hello to, to Samuel Morse uh, from beyond before we <laughs> continue our, our tour of spirit photography. Yes. I call out to you through the ether. And so now this brings us to photography's inherent ties to mortality and metaphysics. Because as we were saying with the disappearing people, with the um, early daguerreotypes, you know, motion creates disappearances. And we're talking about um, trying to fix um, a person's likeness in time. You can't talk about photography without talking about death. Almost every source that I came across when I was doing this research talked about the backdrop of the Civil War. We just can't ignore how much death was going on in the United States uh, when photography was being conceptualized. Um, And same with uh, spiritualism, right? Like there's this haze of, of death. Everybody knew someone who died. And, and so people were trying to live through that and to contend with that and figure out how to relate to that. And one of the ways that they were doing that was through technology. Photography became this potential place for invoking existential anxieties. Photos could, and this is a quote from Peter Manso in The Apparitionist, uh, quote, bridge the chasm created by death, end quote, uh, with their detail and the faithfulness to true likeness of the subject. So before, when you only had paintings, it was a representation. Um, but now you have this image that is so, so close to the truth of how someone looked. You're getting closer and closer to having them outlive their physical body through these photographs. And so we have Matthew Brady, who was recognized for his photographs of Civil War casualties. We have Jeremiah Gurney, who was actually Brady's rival. Wow. Uh, Yeah, his jealous (laughs) rival. Um, And he photographed President Lincoln in his casket. If you want to know more about that, that has an interesting story in itself. So look up the last photo of President Lincoln. Really fascinating story. The photo actually was lost and, and found I think in the 1960s. So we didn't even know that Jeremiah Gurney successfully took this photograph until uh, 
more recently. Um, we also have people calling photography the black art. <laughs> and it's not just because of sorcery, but yes, that was definitely part of it. Um, but also because silver nitrate would stain your hands when you were working oh, okay. with the equipment. I have a lack of knowledge of the terminology, but when you're fixing the photograph, you would get silver nitrate on your hands and it stains your hands, hands black. So it's like, ooh, sorcerer, the black art. Yeah, You're covered in, in stains. Um, in other words, photography came into the world at a time where people were prepared to think about mortality, to think about what it meant to continue on. Um, but it also in itself is a medium that brings up these questions. What does it mean to keep an image in time? What does it mean that we can save the likeness of somebody? Are we capturing a part of their soul? Right, that's the old superstition, the trope. <laughs> right, the trope. But you can understand where that comes from if you think about how before this point in history, it was impossible to um, save what somebody looked like. So I have one more quote I want to share. Quest, do you want to read this from uh, Peter Manso? Sure. To make images of any kind was to traffic in the uncanny. To make images of such perfection that they approached the divine was to invite the widespread belief that a camera somehow captured a sliver of its subject's soul. Thank you. Yeah, so that's exactly what I was just saying, right? Um, there is this inherent uncanny quality to the medium itself, especially when you involve people in it. Right. Well, and we haven't talked a lot about Freud yet. Boo, hiss. <sighs> but the notion of his uncanny is so much about, like, the resemblance and presence of the human subject. And to some degree, you could argue that the photograph is uncanny because it looks like a person but is not a person. Yes. English scholar Jen Cadwallader um, also says, quote, It serves as a stage where Victorians could plot out a reassuring version of the afterlife, particularly in an age of eroding faith. So on the other hand, while there is an uncanny quality to a photograph, there's also, kind of like we talked about in our first episode, this comfort in that uncanniness, right? It's remaining with you beyond the grave. Um, and something I didn't mention was that, you know how we had those really long exposures where people couldn't move for up to 15 or 20 minutes? Well, what kind of person doesn't move and stays perfectly still? A dead one. Correct. So some of the earliest photographs of people are actually corpses because they were the easiest to photograph. And also because that was the kind of person you would want to cling on to the memory right, of. Right? You would want to commemorate someone who you knew was going to disappear from your life. Um, so it was kind of this perfect overlap of what the technology was capable of and what people wanted from that technology. So let's talk a little bit more about science. I thought this was a humanities podcast. 
Well, science rules. You can't do without the social sciences, at the very least. Yeah, science was not as distinct from the arts and humanities as it is today. At this time in particular, a lot of scientists were really fascinated by the supernatural. A lot of scientists, um, like Morse, were actually artists themselves. Um, And so we have this overlap between things like uh, the telegraph as a um, attempt to communicate with the dead, but also an attempt to communicate over these long distances, which at the time was really fantastic. There were also others who were skeptical on the grounds that they were afraid of the supernatural undermining the image of photography as a serious scientific medium. Um, They wanted to protect the integrity of photography and make sure that people didn't automatically see it as some sort of trickery. And we're going to hear more from that side of the science community um, in a few moments. Uh, But first, I need to introduce you to perhaps the most famous, the most well-documented spirit photographer of all time. Uh, And that is William H. Mumler. So William Mumler was born in 1832, and he lived until 1884. He was originally an engraver, but like a lot of craftsmen of his time, he was dabbling in photography. He worked in Boston, um, which is where he met Hannah, the muse. So Mumler worked as an engraver in Boston, which is where he met his future wife, Hannah. Uh, And Hannah was a professional photographer. She had a studio down the street from where Mumler was working. Do you have any idea if it was common for women to partake in photography? You know, I actually am not sure, although it seems as though um, she was, you know, accepted in, in the community. I think she had other women working with her. But you know what it was common for women to do at the time? (laughs) What was common for women to do at the time? Well, you've already said it in our last episode. um, To be mediums. Uh... And this was Hannah's other job. So she was both a photographer and a spiritualist medium. William Mumler totally fell head over heels for Hannah. And it was at... Hannah's photography studio, where he took the first spirit photo, which he said was an accident. There is an article called Helen F. Stewart and Hannah Francis Green, the original spirit photographer, that suggests that Hannah may have been the mastermind behind everything that Mumler did. Behind every great man. Yeah, is an even greater medium. Um, (laughs) I love it. um, I did a lot of reading on Mumler before 
any suggestion of Hannah being an important part of this equation really came up. It was always like, you know, she introduced him to photography or, um, you know, she helped him out. But nobody ever thought, huh, I wonder if Mumler can't explain his process because it's actually his wife who knows how to do it. But anyway, I digress. Mumler eventually went on trial. And as I was just saying, one of the major features of the trial was that Mumler refused to say that these photographs were fake in any way. He kind of played dumb the whole time. <laughs> kind of like, I don't know how it works, but it just happened. It was an accident. I took a photo and there sitting there was my dead cousin. Um, I don't know how she got there. Ain't that just the way? Ain't that just the way? Mumler's tried for fraud in 1869. This is not uncommon, as we saw with many of the spiritualist characters who hosted seances and... Um, it was really common to try and debunk these people. Um, and so that being said, this particular trial ended up being very publicized and very well attended. And in the audience were skeptics, but also spiritualist believers. Uh oh. Yeah. So this trial got crazy. <laughs> Because of the nature of what they were trying to prove, you know, were these actually ghosts or actually spirits in these photos, the trial ended up being predicated on the existence of spirits. So you had the defense citing the Bible as evidence that spirits exist. And the judge in response to this was like, yeah, and I mean, I also have to agree that I have seen spirits in this courtroom. Hey, what? Yep. That's okay. Sure. Yeah, so he he was not... Unbiased? Not, not unbiased, yeah. And he, he was also um, not really even phased by this line of conversation or questioning. By the way, that judge, along with many others, was uh, part of a mass clearing out of corrupt court officials soon after this trial. In any case, we also had a lot of people who had posed for Mumler's photographs uh, present at this trial. A lot of these people who had posed for photos claimed that they were skeptics at first when they came to get their photos taken but that the process of having the photo taken, seeing their dead relatives in the photo, made them believe. I saw her face. Now I'm a believer. And so, again, from looking askance, I have this quote that um, this was not only a great rhetorical strategy, um, but this skeptic to believer uh Pipeline. <laughs> this pipeline, this arc, um, was also, quote, a fundamental virtue essential to any individual's dignity and self-respect. So being a skeptic, who then maybe later believed, but was essentially a skeptic, was considered this virtue, this kind of um, essential part of a person's dignity. And so seeing that 
even those who believed Mumler had some sort of skepticism uh, was a really effective strategy because people looked at them as upstanding, smart members of the community who are not just going to be duped by any old photographer. Right. It sounds like they allegedly came into it not willing to believe and were convinced. So they they weren't just giving in to an existing bias. It gives them credit, which, you know, is not necessarily logical, but on an emotional level, it worked. Eventually, the trial stops focusing on all of these testimonies from the people who had their photographs taken, and it turns its focus towards, well, what techniques were used? How were these photos taken? And this is where we have other photographers come in uh, with their own agendas to have a say in what was going on. So we have this group, the PSAI, which stands for him, Photographic Section of the American Institute of the City of New York. It's brief. I like it's so short of a name. Like it's yeah. really snappy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. So this uh, PSAI were interested in making sure that photography was seen as a legitimate, a legitimate scientific technology and as a truthful form of representing the world. And so they really wanted to protect the medium from frauds like Mumler, right? So they come in and they essentially have to become connoisseurs of spirit photography. These photographers start attempting to replicate Mumler's photographs. And they try all sorts of different techniques. They eventually come up with a list of techniques. But the defense says, yeah, but he doesn't always use those techniques. And and what about this photo where that technique doesn't work? And they essentially say that although these are techniques that can be used for spirit photography, it doesn't mean that's what Mumler did. And they say, you know, you need to learn to tell the difference between a fake spirit photo and a real one like Mumler's. <laughs> this is um, insane. I love this. And in the meantime, while all of these PSAI guys are trying to replicate these photos and debunk them, some of the photographers in this group are angry that the trial is focusing on fraud and that the group is focusing on fraud. They're lashing out at publications and saying that those who were against Mumler were actually proving all of the ways that photography could be used to trick people. So all this attention on the trickery was making a bad name for photography in general. (laughs) So this whole trial is causing a lot of chaos, both in the scientific communities, the photography communities, and the spiritualist communities, um, because also in in uh, spiritualist circles, some people believe that spirit photography is in fact representing ghosts, 
and some think that it is making a bad name for spiritualism. But it only gets better. Because who do they bring in to testify before this is all over? Who? P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum is called in, the, the king of humbug, uh, to testify against Mumler. His whole attitude is sort of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, I-know-what-I'm-doing type of uh, performance. One of the reasons P.T. Barnum was called in was because he claimed that Mumler had sent him some photographs to be used in an exhibition about fakery. Oh, okay. Mumler denies this, and P.T. Barnum could not produce the letters, um, the correspondence between them. And so... Mumler gets off. He is not found guilty, mostly on the grounds that they can't find the particular way that he faked the photographs. So although a lot of the people involved in this case are pretty sure that he's faking it, they can't find the way that he did it, and therefore they cannot find him guilty. What they end up finding out is that he's just very, very, very good at what he does. Um, Sometimes he would use multiple techniques in one photograph to produce the image of a spirit. And to this day, um, like as we were doing research for this episode, Vice and Caitlin Doty of Ask a Mortician put out videos about spirit photography in which contemporary photographers are trying to replicate his techniques. And there are still photographs that photographers cannot explain. So in terms of cultural significance, this trial ultimately solidified photography as a medium of both truth and illusion. Uh, This made the public aware of the philosophical shaky groundwork upon which photography stands. A really wild sentence. <laughs> um, and Michael Leah, the author of Looking Askance, suggests that the trial demonstrated that it was not deception that was punishable by law, but the flavor and style of that deception. Would you say that Mumler was an open fake? <sighs> it's kind of, it's a gray area. Okay. Because I would say that people around him were aware that spirit photography was bunk bunk yeah i think it was for the general public it was known um in fact other studios around uh the u.s and europe were providing similar services with the caveat that these were for fun and that they were going to be faked So I think maybe to the public, there was uh, an awareness that it could be a trick, although Mumler himself wouldn't admit it. But because Mumler was so serious and and because he was uh, connected to the spiritualist circles, his image was more punishable in the public eye. So ultimately, the Mumler trial shows the public that with photography, we're going to have to keep learning how to discern truth. And it brings up a lot of questions as to what photography is capable of, 
um, in terms of showing truth, but also in terms of uh, its place in the practice of humbug. So obviously Mumler, or should I say Hannah Mumler, (laughs) is not the only notable name of spirit photographers from this time. So I just want to share a couple of other names that you can do more independent research on. So we have from London in the 1870s, Frederick Augustus Hudson. Do you want to read the one from Paris? <laughs> we have Édouard Isidore Bouguet. That's in the 1870s in Paris. We have William Hope and the Crew Circle. And William Hope was working in Crew in England, but also later in London at the turn of the century. So this is later, 1905, up until the 1930s. And the Crew Circle outlived William Hope and continued doing work Um, well into the 1930s. With his spectral assistance. And that brings us into the 20th century. And so, of course, spirit photography, just because it was debunked again and again, it it did not go away. When cameras became more portable, um, there's a shift from spirit photography, which takes place in the studio or the seance room, to what... Joe Nickel distinguishes as ghost photography. So I think the intention is the same, but it's nice to have a different term for it so that we can think more about ghost hunters and people going out into the world and trying to hunt for ghosts in haunted places. Um, And so ghost photography is the, the term that we can use for that. With flash photography, we get orbs, And these are supposed to be ghost lights. You know, you take a picture and you see a circle and, ooh, that must be a ghost. I I bring up orbs because, to me, the discovery of orbs really parallels the discovery of spirit photographs um, in that the way the technology uh, progresses is parallel with our understanding of what a spirit is and how it can communicate with the living world. Um, So just like, you know, suddenly we can photograph people and now spirits are showing up in those photographs too. Um, Well, now we have these little portable cameras with flash and we can take them anywhere and we are getting orbs. So the term orbs was supposedly coined by a American paranormal investigator um, and radio host around 1996. But some people also say that the idea of orbs was first referred to as light balls (laughs) by investigator Stephen Parsons. Um, And that was only a few years after that in 1998. But the important thing about these dates is this is right around the time that digital cameras were becoming accessible to the public and um, digital cameras have flash and they are very, very susceptible to what's called backscatter. And if you have ever seen digital photos or even orb photos, then you know um, what it looks like when you take a flash picture and the flash reflects off of dust or water 
or any other particles in the air and you get those little shiny circles, right? So these are seen as orbs. And no matter how much you try and debunk this, there are still people on the internet today who will tell you. Confirmed. (laughs) Confirmed. It's very much like the Mumler trial. That may be backscatter in some photographs, but you need to be able to tell the difference between backscatter and real orbs. You see that? Yeah. That's And this? Shinola. Although the language and landscape of spirit photography or ghost photography has changed, the conversation is really the same. The monster always returns. The monster always returns, and the monster's body is a cultural body. So while Mumler and his contemporaries may have been talking about communicating with spirits of the dead, um, about capturing their image, now we are talking about really things that are maybe more akin to social media of today. Almost this um, (laughs) Pokemon-like desire to collect ghosts. Well, it's kind of funny also because we were talking about the history of photography and we're talking about capturing the living subject or the location at a specific time as a specific way that it once existed. And um, now we want to do that same thing, but for ghosts. We want to capture the ghost and give the ghost this same lasting power that this physical thing had. Right. Yeah, and, and and still we're still like you say in that space of desire to keep the dead with us and also to prove what we have seen. And I I really like this article by Lewis Kaplan called Where the Paranoid Meets the Paranormal. It's from from Art Journal. Um and he makes the argument that uh paranoia is essential to spirit photography, both for the believers and the non-believers. And I think this reflects both on the history of spirit photography and what's going on now, um, mostly in the online space, uh, which we'll briefly touch upon before we wrap this up. Um, But Kaplan says that skeptics are paranoid about proving the legitimacy of technology and exposing fraud. I know what you are. On the other hand, believers have their own kind of paranoia, which is they believe that ghosts are watching them, right? They believe that there is something to be captured that is not visible to the naked eye. And so (laughs) both sides are sort of nervously looking over their shoulders at all times, and neither one can really debunk the other. And so, of course, the humbug continues as well. Did you know about these smartphone apps? I did not. Okay, this was a discovery for me. Somewhere in between, like, 2013 to 2015, there was a huge 
surge of these smartphone apps. Um, one of them is called Ghost Cam Spirit Photography that would place images of ghosts and aliens in user uploaded pictures. And then people would take these and put them on Facebook, um, circulate them around the internet. And they're really cheesy. Um, and in fact, I'm going to share a photo with you. Um, if, if you want to see photos like this, simply Google ghost app or, you know, ghost picture app. Um, they look how you would expect them to look. It looks like Samara Morgan from The Ring is photobombing this group of scene kids. Thank you. And and the other feature of um, internet ghost photography we have to mention is the amazing red circle. <laughs> a, a An edited red circle superimposed over the photograph to make sure that the viewer sees what they are supposed to see. Right. So we have circled the ghost in the window so that you will not miss it. <laughs> and I think that an interesting point of that is it is a self-evident edit in post that helps you kind of like, well, I know it was edited here, so I know it wasn't edited when the ghost <laughs> yes. was put in. Which is, yeah, anyone who is at all Photoshop proficient knows that that is insane. But it's also a really good strategy. And the circle almost always looks like it was done in Microsoft Paint, yeah. which really just adds to the flair. <laughs> Last thing about this uh, ghost app it was not just teenagers doing this and, you know, scaring their relatives on Facebook. Ghost hunting groups were actually caught using these apps to create promotional images, including a 2014 post by the Ghosts of New England Research Society in which they published fake ghost photos made on one of these apps on social media said they were authentic, and it turned out that they were trying to promote an episode of Discovery Channel's American Haunting on which they were featured. It's time is a flat circle. There is nothing new <laughs> under the sun. So we've alluded several times to this battle between the spiritualists and the skeptics, this cycle of belief and disbelief of putting forth these spiritualist notions only to then later be disproven. And within this never-ending duel between the spiritualists and the skeptics, the mediums and spiritualism as a whole mainly faced three strands of opposition. One from the public, one from scientists or the scientific community, and one from religious institutions. So for the most part, at least in the earlier days of spiritualism, the scientific community shied away from them. But the pseudoscience that the spiritualists relied upon in order to rationalize their beliefs and hopefully propagate them led to some testing. Two scientists who were pretty renowned for their testing of mediums were Michael Faraday and William Crookes. You might actually have ever heard of the name Faraday. He was a physicist, and he constructed an apparatus to test the v validity of table tipping at seances. And his test determined that it was performed perhaps unconsciously by the sitters. William Crookes, on the other hand, whose scientific credentials are rather fascinating, he discovered the element thallium, 
and his research led to the discovery of the electron. So, like, this is some bona fide science. Um, but he tested the abilities of D.D. Hume, Kate Fox, and Florence Cook, as well as other mediums. And he found all of them to be genuine. <laughs> so we really do see a lot of... Uh cross-pollination when it yeah. comes to believers and skeptics absolutely in the scientific community at this time at the, at the very least certain individuals yeah um however the experiments that crooks performed may have seemed decent um the spiritualist sergeant edward william cox alleged that uh crooks was an accomplice of florence cook and later, Cook herself admitted to having had an affair with Crooks. Wow. Yeah. Spicy. I believe that at one point, Crooks tested some mediums, and he was able to find that the musical instrument that was being played without anybody touching it was not being tampered with. But he also didn't ex- inspect the instrument before he did the test. Oh, dear. So... <laughs> The scientific method is definitely not particularly being adhered to well. On the other side of this, we have the religious opposition. Janet Oppenheim summarizes the religious conviction of the spiritualists, saying that they were absolutely convinced that theirs was the faith that united all faiths, that reconciled religion and science, and gave man the facts to prove his immortality. And that is really, I think, the foundation of a lot of spiritualist thought and why it would be so popular despite the constant fakery going on while the spiritualists viewed themselves as kind of a religious movement and a scientific movement. They were, of course, rejected by people from more conventional views of both those things. So despite... As Oppenheim said, the idea that spiritualists were of the faith that united all faiths, the Catholic Church did not particularly like spiritualism. It frowned upon it. The Church condemned the practices of spiritualism in 1840, in 1856, and in 1866. Um, Oftentimes, the reasons for this opposition were cited to be biblical doctrine against necromancy— or the idea that Christians should only seek to commune with God. They acknowledged the prevalence of fraud in spiritualism, but they still feared that the spirits were real and that those spirits might be satanic in origin. Additionally, and this is my favorite fun fact, if you take one thing away from our discussion of spiritualism and spirit photography, this is what I want you to bring to your friends and relatives. So John Godfrey Rauper who was a major anti-spiritualist figure in the Catholic Church, published The New Black Magic and the Truth About the Ouija Board in 1919, which is where we see the origin of the notion of the Ouija Board as a source of evil. That single document is really where we see professed the idea that it is going to bring something evil into this world. Because up until then, it was kind of just like a telegraph or a telephone for the ghosts to talk to you. Wow. Do you think that all of those terrified teenagers on those message boards where the background is black and the text is red know that they are 
getting their fears from the Catholic Church? I don't. And also, do you think that they know that they're afraid of something that's copyrighted by Hasbro? (laughs) We'll talk about Ouija boards in their own episode or episodes, but I just... I found that in my research, and I wasted no time in telling it to the next person who told me that she was afraid of Ouija boards. Oh, I love it. And I can't wait to talk more about Ouija boards. Yeah. Um, There is the idea that spiritualism may have been more common in Protestant areas because of the Catholic condemnation, but the movement was pretty generally controversial among most religious circles, and I'm going to probably assume that means christian religious circles um and it was generally considered heretical despite the idea that it may be a form of heresy spiritualism could be approached from a christian affirming angle or an anti-christian atheist viewpoint which you can again see it kind of riding this line between religion and science which is so funny it's its kind of own hybrid body and both sides don't want to accept it as one of them The condemnation by religious institutions turned some spiritualists away from established religion due to the orthodoxy of these religious institutions, and they felt that established religion refused to process the world outside the confines of a book. And a book I'm taking from the spiritualist publication Light because I adored that derision of the Bible. Sacrilicious. And as for this third strand, the public, members of the public who did not subscribe to a belief in spiritualism generally regarded mediums as laughable frauds, as you probably have seen in any pop culture depiction. Um, Mediums were constantly embroiled in controversy over their authenticity. Each was exposed for their falsity repeatedly throughout their lives. Despite the fame and benefits mediumship could bring, most mediums quit eventually and then later fessed up to being hoaxes. And I'm going to give details of a couple of these. There are so many that we could go into. My first of these uh, stories of hoaxes, um, Cox, who we talked about before, he was a spiritualist. He was not actually a skeptic. He claimed to have seen a letter from one medium to another medium explaining how to perform a seance, okay? Okay. So this medium would wear a dress during the seance that was easily removed when she was in the spirit cabinet or in the next room sometimes. She would take off all her clothes except two shifts that she was wearing underneath, cover herself with a muslin veil that could be folded up small and stored in her underwear beforehand. Um, but it could also expand wide enough to cover out her whole body. Then she would use a pocket handkerchief, pin back her hair, and lay out her clothes on the pillows to give the impression of her body still present in the trance while she played the role of the spirit guide. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. That's really elaborate. And I mean, again, I was talking about sleight of hand. Yeah. It's a lot about these systems of where you can hide things and pull them out and what can fold down really small. Um, Also in some uh, seances, the sitters were encouraged to sing Mm. and this uh, Cox also alleges that the singing served to cover up the noise of whatever Uh. 
the medium was setting up. Wow. Um, in the alleged letter, uh, Cox also says that this medium was talking about the attendees of a seance as dupes. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really interesting, I think, because I believe that most of the mediums were genuine in what they believed about spiritualism, mm-hmm. even if they were profiting off of being a hoax representing whatever that belief was. Yeah, and I think that may have been why it was so hard to get confessions out of a lot of the people involved in these hoaxes, Um, not only because it was their livelihood, but because to confess that what you were doing was a performance was also to potentially deny beliefs that you actually held. Um, And I, I think when I think I keep coming back to my good friend, Mr. Mumler, um, but his refusal to say that he didn't believe in what he was doing, it can come across as a way of self-preservation. But I think there's also the potential that there was some real belief there. Um, You know, he he was married to a medium and uh, she was deeply involved in that scene And uh, people were very excited about the potential that they could um, use this technology to connect them with the dead. Uh, So there there is a little bit of a a gray area there in belief. And I am of the opinion that we generally take a very black and white, like, yes or no idea of belief when it's much more complicated than that, especially when you get outside of Christian-dominant Western perspectives. Right. Um, let's talk about Hume. I, if, if you want to believe that Hume was never exposed, then let me be the first. So, <laughs> Didi Hume likely performed the trick in which he made the table float with what is called the human clamp technique. Clamps may have a little surprise for them. The clamps! Right? (laughs) He would put his hands on top of the table during the seance, and he would shake it back and forth, and then while it's being rocked, he would wedge his foot under a leg and then use that as a lever to hold it up. So it would take a lot of strength, but it's just a magic trick at that point. It also kind of feels like a dad joke. It, like you're at a restaurant eating meatballs and spaghetti. And then and you tuck the napkin the behind the fork. The table is moving. Why is the, whose leg is that? <laughs> um, the other thing about Hume is that he was once caught stealing Russian emeralds that he had allegedly dematerialized to the spirit world. Oh no! The Master Emerald's gone! Oh no. <laughs> I can't possibly give you back your emeralds. Yeah, they're in the spirit realm. Now give me back that emerald, Sonic! Let's bring up another famous person. In 1852, Charles Dickens sent reporters to sit in on a seance by the British medium Mrs. Hayden. They had questions that were written down, but Hayden could not see them, and she could not answer a single one correctly. When asked what their mother's name was, the answer she provided was Timok, (laughs) T-I-M-O-K. 
And when the reporter asked, how many children shall I have? The answer was 137. Lisa, I want some more. So Dickens and his reporters actually published a pretty scathing article about this whole ordeal. Um, Similar to Mumler, in 1876, there was the Huddersfield Spiritualist case, which resulted after Francis Ward Monk locked himself in a room and fled through a window to escape an unsatisfied sitter at a seance. Monk served three months in prison. Dr. Henry Slade was also arrested for his fraudulent medium practices in 1880, and he fled the country to avoid three months of prison and hard labor. It's also, I had done this research, and then I actually listened to Queer as Facts episode on Oscar Wilde, where they clarified that in Victorian England, prison and hard labor was a nice way of saying a death sentence because hard labor could really wreck you. They were working you with the pretty much the intent to kill you. Right, so it sounded better on paper than it was in reality. Yeah, they had actually abolished the death penalty, or at least for certain crimes, they had removed it. So, suffice it to say, that Dr. Henry Slade was not escaping nothing. He was not being petty in trying to get out of having to go to prison for the generally harmless practice of fraudulent mediumship, which is all Victorian mediumship. I'd like to speak now to the volume of how many spiritualists there were. The American spiritualists presented a petition signed by 15,000 people to Congress in 1854, pushing for an official investigation into spirit phenomena. Wow, this is not unlike some of the UFO conversations that are going on today. Yeah, I agree. And a congressperson, I believe he was from California, retorted that they should uh, take it up with the Foreign Affairs Committee. Because the spirit world's the foreign land? Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. That Um, brings a whole (laughs) new meaning to foreign policy. (sighs) something after death the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns also the spiritualist register i have not even spoken about the number of publications there were this will touch upon it but there were so many publications yeah the literature is extensive yeah so in 1860 the spiritualist register reported 30 spiritualist journals reached a readership of 200,000 individuals. There were 600 books and pamphlets, 1,500 venues for meetings or lectures of spiritualism, 408 reported speakers, 303 reported mediums, three schools of spiritualism, and the consideration of founding one college. They estimated that there were 1.6 million actual believers and 5 million nominal believers. However, it's pretty likely that these numbers were inflated, at least those last two. Mm -hmm. But no matter what, that really does show how impactful the movement is because they were not inflating the numbers of mediums and of publications and what have you. So... Tying spiritualism and spirit photography and our discussions about them together, we can see how throughout this period, the Industrial Revolution marked a change in how people were relating to death. 
The massive death toll of the American Civil War, for example, boosted belief in spiritualism as a coping device for families of the deceased or families who received no word of their loved ones as a hopeful means of seeing or speaking to this person again. New technologies allowed for funerary traditions that displaced the site of mourning from the physical body of a corpse onto domestic objects such as post-mortem photography or mourning jewelry. Right, because there often were not bodies to be mourned due to the wartime conditions. Right, and even beyond that, there was a trend in moving from the physical presentation of the corpse in funerary practices in the West to seeing it less and less and interacting with it less than people had in the past, which is partially due to medical and technological innovations. So people were primed to wanting to see these photographs with the supposed spirit wanting to interact with the the dead or have a belief that they could interact with the dead and the hope and comfort that that could provide in either medium. <laughs> so Annabelle's going to present you with a quote from Calling Up the Spirits by Lisa Morton, which is the where I got the bulk of my research. Thank you. Okay, here it is. Spiritualism also waned as infant mortality rates dropped. Women found more interesting work outside of the home. Electric lighting became widespread, and morphine and opium, which may have led to visions of occult phenomena, were made illegal. So as death rates were going down, people became less concerned with speaking to the dead, and people found other outlets for um, those philosophical questions. Right. And into the contemporary moment, even with the exceptions of certain moments of mass death in the 20th century, which did have their own resurgences of spiritualism or similar beliefs associated with them, we have gotten more and more distanced from the interacting with the deceased from the looming specter of death because of the prevalence of technology and medicine, as well as our very death-negative culture in the, at least, United States, if not the West. As we've alluded to several times throughout, there is clearly a looming specter of the influence of spiritualism and spirit photography on the zeitgeist on tropes that we see in media nowadays. And we are living in a particularly strange time, sociopolitically, culturally, etc. Um, so as we begin to wrap up our conversation, um, we're going to start thinking about how that affects things and what remnants of spiritualism we see today. Yeah. Um, and, and I think... As Quest said, we're seeing a lot of ideological upheaval and death in the last few years. Um, I think people are just generally very confused about uh, what to believe. Um, and it had me wondering, you know, what is the next spirit photography? Um, I think in a lot of ways, ghost photography and ghost hunting has become almost a parody of itself as it exists, but that doesn't mean it won't come about in a different way that will be more palatable 
to contemporary viewers. Um, but I think in a very sort of um, hauntological kind of way, um, what we're seeing is a resurgence in interest in the history of spirit photography. We're seeing a resurgence in the interest of historical aesthetics in general. Um, and in a certain roundabout way, I feel like we're trying to relive the sort of optimism and skepticism that was experienced by our ancestors um, because we're not quite ready to go there ourselves. And so, as I mentioned earlier, there have been, including this podcast, a lot of investigations into spirit photography and the beliefs of people in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And I think that's one way that we are trying to look to our past to understand our very confusing present. And I think that more and more we feel that the contemporary moment is being intruded upon by structures and ideologies that have been set up in the past mm -hmm. and some that may not even be, I mean, necessary for one, but even like actually clung to for reasons other than tradition, not necessarily true belief in these things, but mm -hmm. more that that's what's been set in motion. So how dare we move away from it? And that has a ghostly quality to it, this intrusion of the past upon the present, which is generally how the ghost behaves. But when we think about these sorts of structures and the culture of spiritualism, I think that short of our own belief in ghosts, we might see this emphasis or at least an allegory of this kind of ghostly presence. So in a sense, spiritualism itself has become a specter that haunts our contemporary consciousness. Yeah. And so as we move into future episodes, we will touch upon themes and the influence of spiritualism, hoaxes and frauds, Ouija boards, mediums, and the feminine power that we often see displayed in the medium. Um, if you have anything to add to this conversation or anything that you would like us to discuss in the future, um, please send us a message at ghosts were people too on instagram or you can email us at gwp numeral two pod at gmail.com that's gwp2 pod at gmail.com it's been lovely now we'd better make ourselves scarce before somebody reveals our secrets and as it says on the ouija board goodbye, goodbye.